You can say whatever you want about 2020, but there's no denying the fact that it will go down in history as a memorable year. So much change has happened, it's hard to take stock of all of it and focus on the future. But that's exactly what we're going to try and do on this week's show. We'll talk about our office spaces, our city centres and our day-to-day work lives. Embedded Tech and Town, thanks to Salesforce. Celebrating 20 years helping Irish businesses, people and communities grow. This is News Talk. It may well feel as though we've crammed 20 years of life experiences into 10 months, but as the saying goes, we are where we are. Over the next hour here on News Talk, we'll hear from Marina Hennigan about what she sees coming down the tracks in the future of work. But we're going to start with News Talk's Deputy Business Editor, Gavin McLaughlin. So Gavin, over the last few weeks, we've looked at um, the footprint that tech has made in Dublin and Ireland as a whole from a whole host of different points of view. Um, And on last week's episode, we looked at company culture. We looked at the human resourcing side of things. We've heard that, you know, the average salary in the Sandyford Business District in Dublin is around €85,000 because it's predominantly tech jobs. So it has had a positive impact in terms of employment and the benefits that come with it. What do the stats show? Like, can do, do the stats back up the good stories that we hear and that we've been highlighting? Yeah, well, if we just take uh, the number of people employed in tech in Dublin, uh, in 2010 it was 32,430. By 2019 it had doubled, uh, 64,117. These these are coming from IDA figures. Um, so, I mean, obviously there's a little bit of a caveat. 2010 was, was the middle of a, a bad recession and 2019 was a booming economy. So maybe it's not quite a like-for-like comp- uh, comparison, but obviously it's an enormous uh, increase in the number of people uh, employed. Um, CSO stats back up... Uh, what you're saying about wages, by the way, uh, not just for Sandyford, but if we just look at the CSO data since 2015, and, and I'm sure further back, the tech sector has been the best paid uh, of any sector in Ireland. So uh, the latest figures for for Q2 show average weekly earnings in tech, €1,251. In second place is what they call financial insurance and real estate. So that's uh, the bankers, uh, basically. So, I mean, it's it's obviously made a huge impact, both in terms of the numbers of jobs that it's brought to the capital uh, and in terms of the economic benefits, in terms of the money that's going into people's pockets. The stats do back that up. In terms of the numbers, uh, in terms of the jobs, I know I often hear you and Vincent and everyone else talking about, you know, X company has announced Y number of jobs. And sometimes the the sceptics will look at that sort of with an arched eyebrow going, okay, but over how long a period is that? And are they all going to be employed by Irish people or are people going to be brought in? And sort of the domino impact of all of that. Is that something like what are those what are the dominoes, I suppose? What, are the, what is the impact of those job announcements? Is it things like, you know, housing, office space, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, it's certainly uh, it's been a huge driver of the commercial property market. I mean, there's no doubt about that. If you look at Google, uh, for example, mm-hmm. they've been hugely active in the city. They've been taking loads of space up. Amazon as well. Amazon are building a new place opposite my son's crash. Okay. So I look at this place every morning when I go in. It's absolutely enormous. I like I can't even kind of, kind of begin to describe the scale of it. It's one of these kind of campus-like facilities to kind of going for a university vibe. Facebook obviously are doing the same kind of thing uh, in the old AIB headquarters in Balls Bridge. Um, so yeah, I mean, tech certainly has had a huge impact on the commercial uh, property market. Um, you are right though to raise this issue because they do tend to say, you know, we we intend to uh, employ X amount of people over the next five years. 
obviously um you know a lot of things can happen in five years time and and, and that may not always actually happen they may not actually hire uh, everyone that they that they say they're going to do um and uh, i think that has become particularly relevant now uh, given what's going on with covid-19 one of the the big things i suppose that maybe i didn't think about when this started uh, but now is kind of quite a stark reality i think if everyone is working remotely you don't need to have these jobs in Ireland necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might be a, a tech company with a, a Dublin unit, but you can em- employ someone for your Dublin unit that might be living in Singapore or whatever. Who knows? So um, I, I think, um, you know, that is going to be a big issue going forward. And, and that, that positive impact uh, on commercial property may not be quite so pronounced going forward. Yeah, if we look at the the campuses, as you call them, so the Amazon one, the Facebook one, we know that Twitter has a great footprint here in Dublin, but all of these companies are still, and rightly so, telling their staff to work from home. And some of the companies are saying that they won't have staff back in the buildings, possibly forever. The option to never go back might, might be put on the table. What impact would that have on the commercial property sector? Would those buildings, and they're fantastic buildings, some of them have been purpose-built, but if staff are going to be given the option to work from home, you know, could these properties in prime city centre locations be turned into residential properties because there just isn't going to be the demand for office space? I think what's more likely is you might see a shift out from, say, the the Georgian buildings maybe that some people are renting at the minute. Suddenly, if there's a, a collapse in rents, uh, the Georgian buildings tend to be cheaper but now if these brand new uh, glass boxes uh, mm. are a little bit more affordable you might see people migrating a bit more towards them if they want to uh, want to surround themselves in a nicer place uh, yeah there is going to be a problem I think there's no doubt about that um, and it has I think shown us that maybe we've got the balance wrong in the city in terms of how many people live here uh, you know in, in, the, in the city centre because now uh, that so many people are working from home you can see the impact that there has been on footfall it's been enormous because you know there isn't sort of a, a natural living community of people maybe uh, to, to, to pick up some of the slack that's been lost from commuters uh, who, who aren't here anymore so uh, it has highlighted that there is a, uh, there is I think a problem with the balance and you're right there may be an opportunity to, to, to uh, you know look at sites that would have been turned into commercial property now maybe they can be apartments instead the, the fear factor um, with the employees not returning to the office or to the same level, and we sort of touched upon it in episode one with Carol Tallon down on the Silicon Docks, is that that area got developed because a certain number of tech companies came in and all of a sudden they needed somewhere to buy their lunch. They needed a coffee shop, they needed somewhere to get the hair done on the fly, and all of a sudden this area was built up because there was people there. If those areas aren't, if there's not a reimagining, I suppose, of how we use that space... Dublin could be, it could be a very, very different place in five, six, seven years um, if our if our population does remote work and maybe we all move to the country to live by the seaside and it's glorious. What's going to happen to our city centre? Well, uh, I mean, I, I don't really know is, is the answer. I mean, there is definitely a, a spectre of these places kind of being, for want of a better word, ghost towns. And they're kind of almost like that already at some mm-hmm. times of the week. I mean, I would say the IFSC on the other side of the Liffey from Silicon Docks, that's maybe a little bit better in terms of having apartments and all that integrated with what's going on down there. But it, still, if you go there at a weekend or certain times of the day, it is really dead. There's very, very few people around. And, and Silicon Docks is the same. Um so yeah, obviously, if that's if 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 it's like that uh, more often, 
you know, it is kind of a, a, a dispiriting prospect. And yeah, maybe you do have to look at these properties that are there and, and repurposing them uh, and, and doing something a bit different. But I mean, the other way of looking at it is that it's an opportunity maybe to correct this problem uh, that, that we're referring to. And maybe uh, you need to, you have a chance to get more people living in the city centre and make it more of a, uh, a living uh, city. That would be good. And, you know, I, I walked down Grafton Street here near uh, Newstock Towers the other day and the number of properties that are boarded up now, so the retail space, it, it's it's very grim. And it took me by surprise because you and I spoke about this briefly, I think, during uh, our Future of Work series. But looking at some of the shops that I would have spent from when I was a kid right up until all this started, so much time in, like whether it is like Monsoon and Accessorize, there was the Urban Decay shop. Like there's a few really big brands and they're just gone. And I was walking down Grafton Street going, geez, what, what's going to happen to places like this? Because we are in unprecedented times. I know it's been said a thousand times before. But if you think that this isn't just one sector, it's not just that shops are shutting up. Offices aren't as busy as they used to be. The footfall isn't there. We are going through a big shift at the moment. Yeah, well, if you think over the last five years when e-commerce came along and people used to say, a lot of people used to say, Oh, well, you know, you can't try to close on. So, mm. you know, I'm not going to bother with that. I'll just uh, I'll just go to the shop instead. Or, you know, people were kind of a bit sceptical about it. But really over the last five years, as kind of, you know, in tandem, I think, with the with the, the rise in smartphone penetration to whatever it is, 95% of the population versus 75% back in 2015, you know, that's really been the, 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 the story of the last five years in terms of tech adoption by the population. I think it, it's really been the, the, the period where e-commerce has has really boomed and um, you know now that that's coinciding with, with what's going on uh, with, with COVID-19 it's inevitable that these places are, are, are going to close and um, you know I, I don't really know what, what what much more you can say I mean this is this is just um, you know capitalism I suppose uh, in, in action uh, people are turning away from the shops they're going to something else and uh, the consequences are, are all those boarded up units that you're talking about. It's very, very sad. Um, earlier in the series, we heard from Leo Clancy from the IDA and he was talking about how they've had to reimagine how they introduce Ireland to um, these big tech companies that they're trying to woo and, and bring them to Ireland. He was saying they're now doing virtual tours of Ireland, which is great because you don't spend six hours trying to get from one side of Donegal to the other. <laughs> you can just like do a YouTube video and it's grand. <laughs> do you think that Ireland's uh, reputation as a tech hub is at stake if these big tech companies don't continue to come here? Like if we all do embrace that remote working thing and you know, if you don't like, like you could be hired by Google working in Dublin, but Google don't necessarily have to have a footprint here. Sure, they don't. Yeah, no, they don't. Uh, I think it will make a difference. Um, probably fairly marginal. Uh, I mean, from talking to people in the IDA that I've been speaking to over the last six months, they they do kind of say that it does make a difference if you can meet people in person, have the pint of Guinness or whatever it is. That that does help uh, if you can do that. But, um. I think our reputation at this stage is very well established and I think uh, all these companies know what we're about. We have a, a long track record, um, you know, Apple, the likes, of the, you know, going back to the 80s or whatever. So uh, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I, I think we're, we're fairly well established. The, the, the threat really isn't so much the COVID-19 stuff. It's more the multinational tax reform efforts that are going on. Mm. Uh, and if, uh, you know... 
obviously they're looking to, to try and have a solution where basically all the OECD countries agree to it and if that happens it will be bad for us but it, it could be even worse if there, there isn't a solution agreed at that level and some countries start going off doing their own thing like say for example the US decide they're going to put a super tax on, on, on companies that are based in Ireland to try and get the jobs home mm-hmm. so it, that's the thing that would worry me more than um, you know uh, companies not being able to come come on site visits. I, I think our reputation is 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 pretty good uh, in that sense. One thing that I've been thinking about, and I don't know if it's just the doomsday brain on me, but if Ireland wasn't the Silicon Valley of Europe anymore, so if the tech side of things was to dry up, what's our next big thing? Like, what is the you know is there another sector that we could all live off and instead of coding we'd be doing that instead? Well, I suppose. Well, it'd be pharmaceuticals. I suppose is the one that comes to mind. Um, I don't know. Does that count as tech or not? Because I suppose some of the pharmaceuticals manufacturers probably would say that they're tech companies with some of the, the the all the the cool things they do to manufacture all these products. So, um, I mean that sector is doing very very well uh, over the last six months. Obviously, given what's been going on, there's a lot of demand for the products that they make. So. Um, you know, we're not just wholly reliant on 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 what's going on in the tech sector. There are uh, there are other things uh, there too. But I am a little bit worried about uh, sort of our own indigenous enterprises. And there've been a number of reports. The National Competitiveness Council, for example, have been warned about this that. Because, uh, you know, despite the fact that the multinationals are so productive and they're so good, it kind of serves to mask the fact that our own SMEs are maybe lagging a bit behind uh, when it comes to, to productivity. And the fear would be, you know, if what we're talking about happens, if te- the, a problem emerges with the tech sector or with the pharmaceuticals or whatever, that maybe what's left isn't kind of cutting edge maybe in the way we'd like. So I, I definitely think there needs to be a bit of work done to try and increase innovation uh, and, and productivity at our, at our own indigenous companies. Probably the education system uh, is the key to that. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the good things that like Ivan used to, cause I don't know who initially said it, but Ivan Yates used to always say, like, never waste a good crisis. Who was, who? was He always power phrased that thing of like, never waste a good crisis. There's always opportunities to be had during a crisis. And I think we are good at that. There's always the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit that comes out in weird ways. It happened during the recession. And I bet it's happening now. But one thing I'm kind of worried about is, you know, will the support still be there for entrepreneurs and for startups? And will we have the same accelerator programs for people to take them from, you know, an idea on a post-it note to a business? Are we seeing that side of things slowing down at all? Yeah, well, there's this whole debate, obviously, over the capital gains tax and whether that should be cut uh, in the next budget. And uh, seemingly the Green Party has decided they don't want to do it. Um, I, it, I mean, it just depends on on uh, who's in government, I suppose. Um, Fine Gael have made a few moves to try and improve the tax environment for, for entrepreneurs over the last little while. I don't think they've been particularly... Uh, you know, beneficial. I mean, they, they're kind of a, a move in the right direction, but in practical terms, I'm not sure they've made much difference. Um, so uh, I suppose it depends on uh, it depends on whether the political will is there to do it or not. I mean, it has been interesting to watch this debate in Britain, uh, where they've kind of decided they're going to get rid of uh, entrepreneurs' relief. That it's kind of seen as a tax break for rich people, and actually. They're kind of questioning whether, you know, these tax breaks actually do incentivize entrepreneurial activity at all. Uh, it does kind of go against this uh, idea that you often hear from entrepreneurs who say, I was, you know, I, ever since I was a child, I wanted to build a business. Mm. I was born to do it. I was an entrepreneur to my fingertips. I was selling lemonade in school when I was six years old or whatever. Um, 
And then, then on the other hand, they're saying, well, actually, we need to have all these tax breaks to incentivize us to do a bit more. So I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm kind of a little bit sceptical about all of this, but, um, you know, it, it does make a difference, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, whether these, these kind of uh, tax reliefs are, are, are not there does depend on politics. The accelerator programmes are important, clearly. Um, and uh, you would hope that people recognise, look, we need to... You need to make sure we don't lose a generation of uh, of really good entrepreneurial companies because there are lots of them out there. You started this piece by quoting some stats in relation to number of tech jobs and salaries in Dublin within the tech sector. Do you think that if we go down the route of remote work and so on, that we're going to see a reduction in the salaries? Like, will the average salary go down because people aren't having to commute? They don't have to live in Dublin. The pressures will be lessened. Yeah, well, even let's just look at these again. So, twenty twenty quarter one average weekly earnings in the tech sector one thousand three hundred and twenty three euro and ninety three cent. By quarter two, it had gone down one thousand two hundred and fifty one euro and three cent. So that's a five point five percent quarter on quarter change. Now, obviously, it's only one quarter, um, so you can't read too much into it. But um, I mean, in theory, there are a couple of reasons why you'd expect wages might go down. One is um, you know, if the labour market uh, swings more in favour of employers, there are more people out of work. Uh, um, you know, that's one reason why why wages could go down. Um, and yeah, it, I th- I think it is possible that if you've got somebody working in Kerry, maybe you don't need to pay them a Dublin wage uh, to to get them on board. So uh, I think you're I think you're probably right. I think there will be downward pressure on wages in the sector. And if we look ahead to the next five years, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but do you see the the prominence of the big tech companies here in Ireland remaining, or do you see a shift coming, and it could be somewhere far left of field? Uh, I would be fairly optimistic. I have to say, if the tax thing works out okay for us, um, I, I I don't see any reason why why the the, the sector shouldn't continue to prosper. Um, you know, I think we've got a, a good reputation built up, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, there's a lot of very talented people working here. Uh, I'd be fairly sanguine about the, the prospects for the tech sector here. I don't I don't anticipate a, a shift unless there's there's some sort of big international crisis uh, that that precipitates that. Okay, well, fingers crossed that there's no big international crisis. Uh, Gavin McLaughlin, thank you so much. Unlike the one, unlike the one we're in at the moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Aside from the pandemic, everything else will be grand. Uh, Gavin McLaughlin, deputy business editor here at News Talk. Thank you so much. Great stuff. Thanks, Emil. Embedded tech and town on News Talk. Thanks to Salesforce, celebrating 20 years helping Irish businesses, people, and communities grow. We're continuing our focus on the future here on Embedded Tech and Town with Jess Kelly on News Talk. And I'm delighted to be joined by uh, remote working specialist Rowena Hennigan. Rowena, not only are you a remote work expert, but you kind of practice what you preach and have been doing for some time. Um, tell me a little bit about your own background and uh, remote working experience. So I started remote working. I was kind of well into my career, Jess, in 2007. I had been traveling quite a lot and came back to Ireland and got a contract at what was then known as Nortel in Galway. I'm originally a Galway girl. And as a part of a couple of projects there, we had fully virtual teams. So there was a couple of us based in Galway, but most of the rest of the teams were based you know, all around the world. So Nortel is now actually Avaya, uh, which people might know the name of. And obviously the Cisco in Galway as well. There's big sort of history there of enterprise telecommunications but when I started working on those projects it really opened my eyes to 
because I never met some of the team members that I worked very well with. Uh, they were based all over the world. So it really opened my mind to the potential of remote and virtual working, teleworking, the Americans call it, whatever you want to call it. But this idea that we don't all have to be present in the same place to get a job done. We, we're looking back at sort of 20 years of the big tech companies here in Ireland. And take us back to 2007, because a lot of us are obviously adapting to remote working for the first time in 2020 when access to broadband is a bit more widespread. The devices have come on so much more. Even phone signal, uh, mobile phone signal has improved dramatically. So what were the challenges back in 2007? Well, back then, there was early days of something called Microsoft Communicator, which would be a very light messaging system, for want of a better term. But it did take away that sort of, there was email as well, but we we would tend to use a lot of this kind of simple messaging. There was a lot of calls, not video, obviously, back then it was more audio calls. But I have to say, in that particular in that particular time, that my my first exposure, the processes and the operations were very very clear on in those Nortel teams, and that was a huge advantage back then. So we, we really knew what we were doing in the teams, even though we hadn't all met each other. There was some really good documentation. We worked with business analysts on the various teams. So when we organized to have our project calls and, and you know, work through different processes, there was a lot of documentation to back that up. So even though we were lacking in some of the more personal relationship tools in terms of the, the, the tech tools, we were very heavy on that structure that was needed to work effectively remotely. And also some of the teams were co-located in Galway and there would have been a really good relationship built up. And in the case of a couple of the teams I was on, yes, I hadn't met people, but a lot of people had met people through visits, through, you know, getting together at different offsites or whatever. So relationships were really important as well. And that those things still exist today. You know, you have to kind of be even more intentional in how you connect with people remotely. And that might be something that people have learned the hard way mm. uh, over these last <laughs> few difficult months. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because although, um, you know, there has been the, the huge jumps in terms of technology and so on, I do think intentional and meaningful communication is the key driver for any successful remote workers that I have interviewed over the years. Obviously, being in the tech space myself, I've met so many of them over um, the last six or seven years, as long as I've been doing this. Do you think that we still have a way to go in terms of educating people how to communicate effectively when they are remote because it, it is I definitely yeah yeah no go ahead yeah I think we do and uh, no I think we do because I mean that's one of the things I I teach as part of my lecturing with TU Dublin is how we build those interpersonal skills and the thing is sometimes if you have an established in-person relationship with someone to transition to remote, there's no problem. You might need to you might need to set up some new norms mm-hmm. and and again documentation. And I'm already remem- mentioned this with the processes and documentation. You might need to revisit those and you know spend some time trashing them out a little bit more. But you you have that trust built up from having a physical in person relationship with them, that presenteeism with them. When we go remote, what's happened is that. Again, you said it, we, we take for granted that we have to actually be more intentional. We have to be more explicit. Then you add in factors like new people on the team, new technology. You add in what people seem to forget is this is not normal remote work at the moment. Mm-hmm. 
We're working from home in a crisis. People are in spaces they shouldn't be in with distractions, with stress. Maybe they don't have the skills because we're not all perfect, you know, computer and technology users. Maybe they don't have even the mental capacity or physical capacity at the moment with what's going on. So you add in all of that and you really need empathetic leadership and empathetic understanding across teams. Mm. And the thing is, it's the virus that's been giving and giving, as you know, Jess, and that, you know, I was given that advice in March. It stands today because even over these last few days, Ireland's going to have more lockdowns. Who knows what's going to happen? So we all almost need to take it one day at a time in terms of someone who could have been really communicative and productive on a team could disappear off grid a bit, for example, at the moment, for whatever reason. So that's not remote working to do with the, you know, the problem of remote working or the negatives. It's mm. to do with the overall situation yeah. that's going on. Yeah. One of the so. things that, that I was struck by at the beginning of lockdown, because um, the, the journalists here in Ireland are deemed essential workers. So I've been in the office predominantly over the last few months, but I did work from home at the beginning. And I'm someone that lives in a one bedroom apartment with a partner that was also working from home. And it made me realise that our living situations, although we have a lovely apartment and it's in a nice part of town and all the rest... It's not designed for that. And that did impact my productivity. It impacted how I looked at my home, how I felt in my home, how focused I was, because although I was on a call or, you know, doing an interview, I was also looking at the dirty dishes on the counter or thinking, Jesus, is that the washing machine in the background? Or, you know, those small little things. The surrounding must be important when you are remote working. It's it's so important. And the thing is, the established remote companies and workers like myself knew this. Mm. I didn't. In January, if you had spoken, I mean, if you spoke to me in full lockdown when I was in Zaragoza, apart from sounding quite stressed because I was in a 70 metre apartment with a co-working husband as well. But I had a six year old climbing all over me, Mm. which we were trying to homeschool. And I mean, I gave interviews at the time saying this is the most stressful I've been in my career. You know, the stress, most stressful time, because every half an hour I had to remind myself of best practice but if you had contacted me six weeks before that in January in the winter in Zaragoza I was not in my home my home office I used maybe one afternoon a week Mm. when my daughter was in school I used a co-working two days a week I would go to a library for research I would go out and have meetings and I would go to cafes that was my week I was moving around Mm -hmm. that's what I mean this thing of everyone being in a home office, there's a misunderstanding that there are some beautiful home offices out there at the end of gardens and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But the reality of it is remote working does not mean that you are stuck in a restricted space, which is what people have had to experience during COVID. And it's not it's not normal. Remote working gives you flexibility. Mm -hmm. People will work from lots of different spaces. Co-working in Ireland is huge. The industry has come back. It's starting to recover. For anyone listening who's struggling, you can go to co-working spaces around Dublin, even if you try it for a day, even if you try just getting out of your space, because it sounded like, Jess, you even recognised that you weren't that productive from home and you had the luxury of being able to go Mm -hmm. into the office, you know. We often need that space between work and life for work-life balance. Yeah, I I think so. And I think it is about, 
you know, because the remote working thing, people do think, oh, I can work from bed every day and it sounds great. But it, I like to call it work anywhere culture, you know, where you can be like I, I have edited this show on top of bins outside local stores. I have done it from airplanes. I've done it from trains. I've done it all over the world, which is fantastic. But I do think the forced nature of what we're in at the moment is obviously a bit different. But you mentioned there about the remote working hubs and that is something that we have seen and we've covered quite a lot on Tech Talk, on the future of work and indeed on Embedded Tech in Town here on News Talk. Um, Do you think as some of the big tech companies have told their staff, you know, that they don't have to come back to the office ever if they don't want to, do you think that's going to see a rise and an increase in the number of remote working hubs that we have? I, re- I really hope so. And I really hope that people realise that and a lot of the models from those co-working spaces around the country in Ireland have, have moved with the times. Mm. They're allowing day passes, flexible passes. You know, you can go in for a week if you're on a particular project. I mean, some of the more established remote companies, I'll drop a few names, GitHub, GoodLab, Doist, uh, Automatic, already give assistance in their employee contracts for co-working spaces okay Mm -hmm. so I wonder if any of the progressive tech companies that are listening uh, and I'm sure they will and maybe some have already done it will also consider that or that employees can start to ask for that so I share normally I'm actually in Galicia today so I'm really practicing what I preach Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm in a I'm in a co-living space in the countryside but normally in Zaragoza I share a space with someone who is with one of the big big tech remote companies and he gets assistance from his employer to co-work. So they've acknowledged that if he chooses not to have a home office, they subsidize him in that space. That's well known in that part of, you know, in that sector. So I think that when a person, you know, when they're working and they say, well, hang on, actually now I'm sharing with a sick relative, a housemate that's noisy, or I'm just finding that I'm I'm blurring my boundaries between work and life. I want to choose a co-working space, whether it be full time, three days a week, temporarily, whatever. That progressive employers are saying, let's help with this, offer some sort of subsidy, be aware of it, offer it through HR. And 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 it's beginning to happen because the fully remote companies already did that, Jess, and they realize that giving people the option supported productivity. And I'm sure it still works out cheaper than, you know, hiring a big office block for 2,000 of your staff that they have to commute in and out of and all the rest. It does probably make business sense. And obviously, if it makes the employees that bit happier, they're going to be more productive as well. Of course. And the other thing is, it's much more flexible. How many leases? Well, well I'm not sure, but in terms of the membership, it wouldn't be as restrictive in terms of contract with real estate mm. and, and, and leases. So so that and that reason alone you know, you have people out of just being in a homework space. Uh, what's really interesting for me is the fundamental of the commute. And even when I'm only walking to a co-working space, which is 10 minutes down the road in Zaragoza, my mental health is so much better when I've separated work and life and I'm going and commuting to work and coming back. So it's the best of both worlds to have that break between where you work and, and where you live. Do you think, and this is probably me with my cynical hat on, but do you think there's an element of a remote working bubble? Because we've all been pushed into it now, some people are still kind of excited about it. Some people are getting a huge benefit for it because they can walk their kids to school in the morning, go back to the home, work for a few hours. You know, there's not as much commuting. There's not maybe the same childcare considerations or stresses as there were previously. But do you think an element of this is a bubble that will burst before long? I don't think so from what I've seen coming out, right? And I'm not talking just about the big 
some of the big well-known tech company moves just even through corporates that I'm involved with and, and different things I don't think that they're giving more flexibility now it's not permanent Jess because nothing's permanent at mm. the moment there's a lot of year to year end or to 2021 2022 but the indications are there right that that they're beginning to see that if they offer this flexibility right from the employer perspective it's 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 better it's all they can do at the moment but then it's giving people a taste for this right and i think with co-working and maybe shared some pop-up shared spaces i mean for example shopify in ireland one of the big remotes there's 480 i think or something like that remote out of ireland pre-covid they would have at least every two months or three months pop-up get-togethers in different regions in Ireland. So the thing is, as well, we have to realise that they weren't all fully remote. They would get together quite Mm. regularly within certain regions and the same for lots of the other remote companies. So I just think that what's happening is the more traditional or mainstream organisations are learning from the fully remote. They're learning in terms of reaction to the market and everything that's been happening. And then I think employees have seen not in all cases, some people will want to go back to the office. And I totally respect that, right? But I think other people will say, the fact I can two or three days a week walk the kids to school or whatever, that's what I want to do. I want to be in my local area, whether it be in my home office that I'm happy with or I'm going to go down and work in a co-working hub down the road and be near. Yeah, what do you think would happen to um, some of the companies that refuse to offer this remote working or flexi working or work anywhere culture. Do you think that that will be seen as a major negative to prospective employees and indeed current employees as well? Well, I, I think that those employee, I think that those uh, employers, and there may be some of them. I hope that they've done a staff survey. Is all I'll say. And that when they make that decision, there's a lot of staff surveys happening out of HR now. A lot of the big companies were using them to judge how they should move next, whether to offer a mixed model or what kind of model to offer, even a transition model at the moment. So I think if, first of all, if a company decides strategically to do that, uh, I'd love to have a chance to talk to them if anyone's listening, because I'll give them a whole list of other benefits that they potentially haven't thought of. I think an all or nothing approach could be quite dangerous unless, unless, and I'm happy that if they've surveyed their current employees and that that's what they want Mm. from a survey, if they take that move. Because I I don't know the view in every, and there's different size, small enterprises out there, etc. So if they've done that, then great. In terms, but I just want to mention something which gets missed because we are in that bubble, Jess. Mm. There's so much research to show for diversity and inclusion, for uh, you know accessing maybe part-time return to work tech people etc etc that remote work really really helps on that you know side of things so if you are considering I would really really recommend that you look at the full socioeconomic benefits and people have missed that now yeah in terms of they've just kept survived through business continuity disaster recovery type approach to remote working Mm. but there is so much more 
Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, interviewed Anne O'Leary, the CEO of Vodafone Ireland um, last year now at this stage, I assume, uh, I presume. And it was an interesting conversation because I I was talking to her about how uh, and why they instill all of these brilliant different HR policies that they have. So they don't have meetings before a certain time in the morning. They don't have meetings after a certain time of the day. People can kind of come and go if they want. They can do four day weeks. They can do three day weeks. All she cares about is once they get get their work done and I said to her you know as the CEO how does that work for your business does that not impact your bottom line and what she said is by having these policies in place it actually opens up a whole host of people that maybe would have discounted themselves from the workforce because they thought you know you had to be in five days a week 12 12 hours a day and now she's getting all these brilliant particularly women um, coming back into the workforce maybe after having their children and being a vital part of the business and giving 110% while they're there and then still having that work-life balance. Totally. And I mean, that w- that is so, was or is so progressive and I applaud her for it. And I there's other organisations like, you know, other examples. But even in these last six w- months, I would argue that that's now a needed approach. Mm. Almost something that you need to, by default, be considering. And I mean, I kept up my career working remotely from Spain back to Ireland with a a daughter with chronic asthma. So I really get it. And I managed to keep up having clients and being freelance. And and when when there was a couple, you know, a couple of really tough years where I couldn't work full time, Jess, but I managed to sustain a career. So, you know, if I had been disregarded as, oh, you can't do that remotely or virtually, where, you know, where would things be? But it's it's changing. And savvy employers are beginning to realize that they are opening up a new talent pool. They're opening up access. And then by association, they're covering off a lot of what they need to in diversity and inclusion because they're more open minded to there being a shorter view of core hours, to being OKR or more output rated or performance rated rather than hours at the machine they're not expecting you to be sat there from nine to six Mm -hmm. if you're delivering and getting your work done in the core hours in these times without too many meetings and with the proper support structures then people can thrive and they do thrive completely Mm. I know that the present day um, sort of existence of work is weird and it's unprecedented and it's completely not normal. I don't know if you have a crystal ball there beside you, but if you look at the future of work, what are the trends that you see coming down the track? I, I see I see the chance. What, what I find interesting is that this experiment was called the remote work experiment that nobody wanted has led to so much more of the conversations like we're, we're needing to have, like we're having today, right? That, that we're beginning to realise that talent pools can be opened, that work can be done. As you say, work anywhere, work is not a place, is, is my one as well that I like to use. And that a lot of people, given the chance, will thrive, will, will bloom, right? Mm-hmm. If they can choose where and how they work. And what's interesting is the shift in leadership for me okay and I want that shift to keep happening what happened what I saw amongst peers and leaders and thought leaders in this space over these last few months is how they were being vulnerable how they were saying oh it's been difficult but we've got there and they're seeing the positive and they're beginning to see that wider potential of remote work and flexible working 
there won't be, you know, it's not going to be universal. There'll still be people who don't, who won't choose it. But I believe there's going to be more choice. I hope that it will be more equal in terms of bringing along through skilling and through access to more jobs, working with, for example, growremote.ie, mm -hmm. the community organisation out of Ireland that's doing fabulous things, that suddenly we, you know, we're beginning to see that if we can train people up, we have access to these wider jobs and that we're not just even looking into Ireland for those jobs. So I see potential and I see it through the crisis uh, because I, I hear and I, I, I see the right actions, but I hear the right conversations happening. And I truly believe that if the wider socioeconomic benefits can be appreciated of remote work, that, for example, full-time carers, that people who are maybe disabled that are stuck at home can work part-time, can access good quality jobs via computer, wherever they are in Ireland, that we can start to spread this out and that we, we will start to see some sort of big change in terms of access to those remote roles going forward. And that's what I believe is going to happen. Well, look, that is a nice, positive, uh, hopeful tone to leave things on. Rowena Hennigan, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Jess. And that's all we have time for this week on Embedded Tech in Town. If you missed any of the show or indeed any of the series so far, you can find it up on newstalk.com or search for Embedded Tech in Town wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to researcher Sonia Tutti. Until next week, from me, Jess Kelly, take care. Embedded Tech in Town on Newstalk. Thanks to Salesforce. Celebrating 20 years helping Irish businesses, people and communities grow.